welcome. Today we are at Recovery Centers of America in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. Our office is here and I'm sitting down with Marguerite Warner. She is our Senior Alumni Coordinator at Raritan Bay in South Amboy, New Jersey. She's doing an outstanding job there working with our alumni and I'm so pleased um, to sit here and have a conversation with her today and just talk about recovery, talk about our alumni, and talk about her journey um, of personal healing and restoration and, and how she came to be at RCA. So um, thanks so much for being here, Marguerite, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Jay. Um, I'm Marguerite Warner, Senior Alumni Coordinator at Recovery Centers of America at Raritan Bay. Um, I've been with Recovery Centers of America for three years now. Um, prior to coming to RCA, I worked in treatment for a little over seven years. Um, I've been in personal recovery, long-term recovery for 17 years. That's wonderful. Thank you. And what brought you to RCA? Uh, I had worked in treatment before and the facilities that I had experienced were wonderful facilities, but there was always something um, missing. There was something lacking. I wasn't feeling fulfilled with the work that I was actually doing with the patients at those sites. Um, so when I had left working in treatment, I had kind of teetered on perhaps not continuing working in the field of recovery. Um, and I, I, I really believe that, you know, God outlined this path for me because it was by chance I met someone and they were actually a recruiter for Recovery Centers of America. And we just kind of hit it off in a conversation. They had suggested that I applied for the position at South Amboy. I applied for it. I went in and interviewed with for the position. I fell in love with the two people that had interviewed me. When I saw the site, I fell in love with the site. Um, and the thing that really sold me the most is the true passion and love for the patients from absolutely every staff member in that facility. I've never experienced anything like that before. And um, I thought like that this is for me. This is what I was lacking. This this is what I need to feel fulfilled in my career. So what was your first position with RCA? My first position with RCA was as a 12-step recovery instructor, which I had no idea that that even existed. I've never experienced that. I'm a woman in long-term recovery and I I that was the missing link to treatment. So what does a recovery instructor do? A recovery instructor has the opportunity to take the 12 steps and the 12 spiritual principles and break them down in a language that makes it very uh, simple for a newcomer to understand. Um, it also gives us the opportunity to work with uh, patients that might have had experienced long-term recovery and there was a piece of the puzzle missing and they fell off along the way and now they're back in treatment. And I get to, I would get to sit with them and go through the process and have a deeper understanding with them to try and pinpoint where is it? Where do we need to work a little deeper? Where do we need to go a little bit deeper in your 12-step process to help you to not only obtain long-term sobriety or recovery, but 
experience it in that moment, but be able to continue to grow in it throughout your journey. Like that was the most amazing experience to, to be able to transmit that to a newcomer sitting in treatment. It's just unheard of. I got the privilege to listen to you this morning, break down the 12 steps with your partner, um, Jay, who is also an alumni coordinator at Raritan Bay. And it was so fascinating. And I think you do exactly that. You just make it easy to understand and parts that get people tripped up. You had illustrations and personal experiences that just, I could have listened to you all day. I know we only had about an hour and a half, but it was so good. Do you have a favorite step or one that you think people trip over and you've found some sort of secret sauce that helps them understand? Absolutely. Well, you know, what's funny about that is as a newcomer, um, as I was entering to each one of them, I, I felt like I was tripping over them because I was just so riddled with fear. You know, wow. um, I wanted desperately to recover. And I knew that the, you know, the, the women that were showing up in my life to mentor me and take me through this process were well equipped to do it. You know, they had been living in long-term sobriety. They had all been through the 12 steps and they were practicing the maintenance and growth steps of 10, 11, and 12. I knew they could do it, but, um, in early recovery, we tend to believe that we're terminally unique. And although it might have happened for millions of others, it's just not going to happen for me. But I think in the beginning, uh, the challenge for me was God. And the challenge approached me in step two when it said came to believe that a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity. And then in step three, you have you actually make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understood him or understand him. And what tripped me up with that was, I knew that there was something greater than me. I knew there was something more powerful than me. I obviously didn't create the universe. You know, I can't make trees grow and I can't make the ocean waves, you know, come in and out. I get that. But I had lived a lifestyle that um, guilt and shame kept me from believing that whatever that greater power was, that it wouldn't want anything to do with me, Hmm. you know? So that kind of kept me blocked for a little bit of time. But the beauty in this process is when someone showed up in my life as a mentor, as a sponsor, and sat down and said to me, you don't have to believe in anything. It doesn't have to be a set belief right now. What I want you to do is to consider it this way. Are you willing to believe over time if we go through this process together that maybe, just maybe, you'll develop an understanding and a relationship with in time? It doesn't mean that you have to have that ideal set right now, you know, And, and that was super helpful for me. And what I did utilize in the beginning was strength in numbers. I sat in a, in, in a room with 25 other people, sometimes 50 other people, depending on you know the size of the meeting, and they were staying sober a day at a time, you know. Um, and I thought if if there if the power in that room and the strength in that room, you know, was big enough that maybe if I if I continue to go through this process, that that would happen for me as well. So I I literally drew from the strength of the group, you know, until I could find you know, what my ideal was, what my understanding is, because I really didn't know. I, I didn't have a, 
a set ideal, you know, it was super helpful. My sponsor sat me down in the end of step two before moving into step three, because it's all about me coming to this conclusion in the first two steps. There's really no work being done there, but you know, in one, I have to come to a conclusion about myself that I am an alcoholic or an addict, you know, and I have to be in, um, resolved with that in my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, moving into step two, she sat me down and she said, what, what does God look like to you? What does it mean? What does spirit, what does a spiritual life look like to you? She said, I want you to, I want you to write it out, you know, and she had me write down all, you know, the ideals I had about, uh, you know, a belief system. And then she said, I want you to, on the other page, she said, I want you to write, write out what you would like it to be. What would you want it to be? Wow. And everything that I wanted it to be was a loving, compassionate, um, forgiving, supportive, unconditional love, like all these things that I was obviously thirsting for, but didn't know how to receive, you know, it wasn't that it wasn't there to receive. I didn't know how to receive it. So she did this little assignment. It was super easy. Then she had me fold the paper in half. She had me tear it down the center and she told me, take the side of the paper of the things that you would really want in a relationship with a higher power or God and just hang it on your mirror. You know, and each day, she said, I want you to take a look at it. She said, because relationships don't happen overnight. Relationships develop over time. And as I take you through this process in the 12 steps, that's what I want you to have your mental image to be. You know, it was a game changer. I was like, I can do that. You know, I can do that. And during the process, until I started building that, I kind of leaned into hers. You know, I said, obviously, she shared her story with me. And it, it, it was an amazing story, you know, where she started and where she ended. And she had such a strong faith in God that I, I, I actually asked her, I'm like, you know, is the belief that you have in, in your God big enough for the both of us? And she said, absolutely. I said, well, I'm going to tap into that and hold on to that until I can find my own. That's you know? beautiful. And it worked. It worked, you know. Um, yeah. So with that you know, going into step three. And the reason I'm kind of playing on these steps is because a lot of people get really super uncomfortable as soon as you hear the God word, Mm. you know? And I don't necessarily believe that it's for any other reason than most of us believe that if you've lived the life we lived and if you've done the things that we have done, we don't stand a chance in that spiritual arena. We don't really deserve to be in that element. You know, I think more so than anything else. There's a lot of old hurts and a, and a lot of old wounds that kind of keep us stuck, you know. But the 12-step process allows us to go through this. And the ideal is to all the old ideas that we have that are keeping us stuck in life, in the literature that I read from, it says those old ideas have to be smashed. And a completely new set of ideas, right? So it's going to just... Re- really retrain my thinking, you know, shift my perception of life and, and, and the people in it, you know, and once that begins to happen in my understanding, then it gives it time to travel down to my heart and then it becomes my living, you know, so moving out of that, uh, the work that we did in step two, when she said, you know, are you ready to make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God? Um, Obviously, there was a tiny bit of struggle with that as well. I'm like, what does turning my will on my life over even look like? You know, what does that mean? I don't know how. I don't know how to turn my will on my life over, you know. Um, 
And what she said is, you know, how are you showing up with your thinking? What's your thought life like? And it was very negative, you know, um, a lot of, you know, uh, negative thoughts about myself, negative thoughts about others. And she said, well, what does that lead to your, you know, how do your actions follow those thoughts? And she said, your thoughts and your actions are your will and your life. She said, basically. She said, would you like some guidance and direction with that? And I said, absolutely. I would do absolutely anything to escape the way I was thinking which would lead to the way I was acting. And she said, if we look at it like that, she said, it might make it a little bit easier for you. Why don't you take us to the point where those thoughts and those actions had led you? Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Like your pre-treatment, pre-sobriety journey. What did that look like? So back in active addiction. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So basically, um, I had an, although I had very low self-esteem, I spent a great deal of time making up the exterior to appear as if I had a great deal of confidence and didn't suffer with a low self-esteem. But every day when I woke up, what that routine would look like from the minute I got out of bed until I walked out of the door in the morning There was never a thought in my mind that I was worthy, that I was good enough, that I was smart enough, that I was pretty enough, that I was thin enough, that I had the right clothes or or the right house or the right car or the right man. There was always something that wasn't enough. And I would spend a great deal of time putting on the best clothes, the makeup, the hair. And when I walked out that door, the image that you would get is, is this extremely confident, well put together woman, but on the inside, I was just a shattered, broken little girl. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how I lived and it was exhausting. It was absolutely exhausting. And we refer to it as being a chameleon because the way I would show up and engage with you would be very different than the way I would show up and engage at home and the way I would show up and engage with different friends. There was always a, um, I would take on almost like a different personality. You know, our literature references an actor wanting to run the whole show. So depending on what situation I was in, I would present as how I thought you would want me to be. And that way everything would be okay. But after you do that, even for an eight hour period, it's absolutely exhausting. You never show up as who you really are because you're just too afraid that nobody's gonna like you, Mm. you know? so. That's what it feels like. That's what it looks like. The uh, solution that I had found to those feelings, you know, that thirst and that hunger that I was having to fulfill something inside of me that it just felt like nothing could ever fill. You know, all the fancy clothes, all the best designer handbags, the car, the house, it just never filled that, you know. And when I was introduced to alcohol, that instantly became my solution to that discomfort that was inside of me. It gave me courage, and when I looked in the mirror, I saw beauty, and when I spoke, I spoke freely. There was no more social anxiety or discomfort. When was that? When were you introduced to alcohol? I was introduced to alcohol for the first time late 20s, early 30s. I had grown up... So a little late. It wasn't your teenage years or like when we typically think that's when active addiction starts or... Yeah, well, that's the thing. Um, 
you know, it's different. I believe it's different for everyone, you know, but for a long time in my early recovery, that was one thing that kept me from thinking that I actually belonged in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because that is the fellowship that I participate in. Um, I grew up in an alcoholic home. You know, I had an alcoholic parent. I had siblings that were alcoholic um, and in drug addiction. So the chaos, you would call it a cup full of chaos, you can call it a cauldron full of chaos, um, affected me in a way that that was something that I was never going to do, nor was I going to become. And I wouldn't associate with anyone throughout my teen years and even my early, you know, early adult, early 20s. I wouldn't associate with people that drank or used drugs. But eventually what happens is you, you believe you've arrived in life, you know, my image of what drinking and, and using drugs looked like was, was a, was a pr- very chaotic, mm-hmm. uncomfortable upbringing, right? So that's, what, that's, what, that's the mental image, the emotional image that it left on me. So now I'm older and I'm going out on dates and you know, I'm going out with friends and there's social drinking and they're having a drink or two. They're having a wonderful time and nobody's fighting. The police aren't coming. There's no hospital visits. So it started to take on a different appeal Sure. And I, you know, I used to be the Diet Coke girl every time I went out, you know, and there was just one time when I said, you know, no, get me whatever you're having. I want to try that, you know, and I'll tell you what, you'll hear so many alcoholics say this, you know, I instantly felt like I took the deepest breath I'd ever taken in my life. It felt like I had been holding my breath my entire life. So not only could I breathe in, but I exhaled so deeply and my entire body just relaxed. And for the first time in my life, I just felt okay being me. You know, I never felt like the person that I was on the inside was meant to be in, on the out. You know what I mean? Like the outside and the inside never fit. It was always too uncomfortable. And so where did that lead from that moment? How did, how did the spiral happen? It didn't happen quickly for me. Um, it was actually over, I would say it progressed over a few years. We, although it felt fabulous, it wasn't something that I was like, I wanted to run out and do every day. You know, some people it happens that quickly, but for me, it was a period of time. Um, I started doing it every weekend because it was fun. Um, what happened was I went to a, um, a party, you know, with multiple other people. I had some nieces and nephews and we had far too much to drink that night. And the next morning when I woke up, I was sitting at a table with my two nephews and they were adult nephews, mind you. We were sitting at a table together. And uh, when I walked in the room, they're like, oh, you don't look good. And I'm like, oh no, no, I don't feel well. You know, I don't feel good at all. And my one nephew poured a shot and he said, you know what the cure for that is? And I said, no, no, you've got to be kidding me. And he said, you bite the hair of the dog that bit you. Now, I had never heard this before. He said, try it. And he slid it across the table, and I picked it up, and I drank it as if it were water. And that was my solution that minute and for the rest of my life. Because from that moment forward, there was no time that I couldn't drink. There were no limitations to my drinking. And if I had too much, I always had a solution in the morning. But the progression of alcoholism, what that looks like is, a shot used to make me feel better in the morning. Eventually, it became a bottle made me feel better in the morning. 
and then it was two bottles, and then it was a bottle in the morning, a bottle at nine, a bottle at 12, a bottle at three, a bottle at five. And it didn't make me feel better. What it did, it was maintenance drinking from that point forward. It just got me through the day. And you're in another exhausting cycle. Yeah, yeah. It didn't even feel good anymore. That's this, you know, that's the sad part about addiction when the love, your loved ones are looking at you and are saying, why can't you stop? Why can't you stop? We don't even want to be doing it. We're drinking against our own will. We're using against our own will. It doesn't feel good anymore. So let's get to the good part. Like right. Skip to the good part, okay. right? Good How stuff. did you wind up getting sober? Oh, this is a good story. Uh, I tried multiple different treatment platforms. Um, I tried going to IOP. I tried some time in PHP. I did an inpatient. Can you tell me what IOP and PHP are? Sure, sure, sure. Um, so IOP is intensive outpatient treatment. So you just go in the evenings, a couple days a week? What I, yep. Yeah, well, there's, there were a couple different ones. One I had gone to, which was for three hours um, in the morning. That was the first one that I had tried. I failed. Um, and I, I truly believe it wasn't the anything to do with the IOP itself. I, I just truly believe I really wasn't ready to get sober. You know, I, I, did, I just couldn't do it. Um, when that didn't work, we tried PHP, which is Partial Hospitalization Program. That was more intense. That was five hours a day. Okay. But see, it was wonderful while I was there. The things that they were teaching us, you know, were were excellent life skills, probably things that I hadn't learned throughout my life, you know, as I was growing up. But the problem was I left every day. And when I left, there was that period between the facility that I was attending the PHB at and my home, you know, and there's multiple liquor stores along the way. And I really truly believed that I just wasn't ready. You know, as much as I wanted to stop, I just wasn't ready to stop. So again, I relapsed. Um, and I went into inpatient treatment. And at that time, this is 18 years ago, at that time, inpatient treatment was 28 days, like the old Sandra Bullock movie, right? The 28 days. And it was a, it was a great facility. Um, it was the first time that I had ever seen a big book. We didn't have 12-step classes, but occasionally somebody would read a story from the big book with us. Um, but when I left that treatment center, they did uh, suggest that I go to a meeting every day that I find a home group, that I get a sponsor, and, and that I work the 12 steps of whatever fellowship I participate in. And when I left that treatment facility, I felt great. I felt I was scared, I was frightened because I had to go out into this big scary sure. world without you know my best friend, my, my constant companion, you know, alcohol. So um, when I s set out, things were, were pretty good. But what I had done is I, I have an alcoholic mind. So when you tell me to go to a meeting every day, to me that translates to go to two meetings a week. And when you tell me to get a sponsor, you just said to get one. You didn't say I'm meant to call them every day. Alcoholic mind. Mm. What's that? Delusion. delusion. Constant delusion. What happens in my mind is... What, I, well my, what my delusional mind tells me, I believe, is fact. Really? And it's not fact. It really, truly isn't. I will come up with an idea or an ideal about something, and I will absolutely believe that this is fact, and this is how it is, and this is how it's meant to be. And it's completely the opposite. But 
with with a with the alcoholic mind is it's it, the best way to put it is it's the lie that my mind tells me that I believe and I don't have any choice but to believe it. And how do you how did you get out of that? The 12 steps. The 12 steps. Yes, great greatest greatest gift. So four and a half months out of that treatment facility, you know, by not going to meetings, by having a sponsor in name only, um, not calling any other women as a support network, all the things that were suggested, I relapsed once again. And during that relapse, I was still under the influence of alcohol. I called a woman and she met me on a street corner in South Philadelphia, complete stranger. And she took me into a meeting and she sat beside me and and I'm sure it was uncomfortable because I was sitting there reeking of booze you know but she sat beside me her and her friend and after that meeting they actually drove me home from South Philadelphia to South Jersey you know and she said give me a call tomorrow and I called her the next day and she said let's go to a meeting and she picked me up after work and she took me to a meeting and the greatest gift that she could have ever given to me was she gave me a copy of the big book and she said let's start reading it together let's go through this 12-step process the same woman is the woman that took me through that second that yeah. second step process I shared in the beginning with you and that decision we made in the third step you know when we did my third step she knelt with me when I said my third step prayer and I felt something I, I believe it was what I felt was the first time that I allowed myself to be vulnerable enough to have any form of intimacy with another human being to actually kneel and pray with them because that's something that I would have been ashamed of doing, you know, with another person. I don't know why. There's no valid reason for that, but it was something that I would have yeah. felt. Um, but she didn't waste any time. She got me immediately into writing inventory and she had me take a look at, um, you know, how I was showing up in my relationships. Inventory. Inventory. You're using yes. words here. Look. Okay, Tell sorry. me what inventory okay, is. Yeah. So, it, so it, it, it's a personal inventory. It's a moral inventory. It's um, what it, what the inventory process looks like. It'll have me list my resentments, you know, um, resentments from my past, things that make me angry. Sometimes oh, that sounds scary. Yeah. Sometimes it's the just bugs me list, you know, because I was one of those people that thought I didn't have any resentments when I was new. So I struggled with that as well. I think I struggled with absolutely everything because I put struggle on it. You know, um, the disease kept telling me that, no, 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 we don't want that solution. But um, she had me list my resentments, why I was resentful how they made me feel, you know, because most of the time when we go through life, this is the way I was taught. I go through life and I see things where, Jay, if you were to do something to me, you know, I would be extremely offended and I would have an extremely hard time forgiving you for it. But if I were to do the, to do the very same thing to you, I would want you to understand why I did it, what my motive was. If you only understood it was because of this or because of that, but if you were presenting that back at me, I would be completely closed off to that. I wouldn't want to hear why you did it. I wanted, didn't, wouldn't want to hear what your motive was. I would just want to judge you on the act that you did to me, right? And, and that, that's the way I went through my entire life. I always wanted justice for you, but mercy for me. And that's just the way my thinking was. I didn't, and I didn't even know that's how I was thinking. I had unrealistic expectations of absolutely every person that crossed my path, my parents, my siblings, my teachers, everyone. I had these expectations of them that I myself couldn't live up to. 
But when I had them for you and you didn't live up to them, I developed a resentment. And so you have to list all of those. Yeah, so you write it out and you take a look at it. And, you know, and it's time to get like a constructive view. And, and that's where it's really nice because after you're done writing this inventory process, your sponsor or mentor will sit with you and they'll discuss them with you and help you dig down deep and see where, where are my shortcomings? Because the inventory really isn't about, well, my dad did this and this is how it made me feel. Because the truth is, I think I'm the greatest mother in the world. But if you sat my son down in the next room and you asked him to write inventory, I guarantee you I'm going to show up on his inventory. It's impossible for human beings to live up to other people's expectations. It's just not practical. So in doing so, you kind of there's got to be a level of freedom when that's done huge freedom huge freedom because you know that's just the first part of it after you have you know listed jay did this is how it made me feel what it asks us to do right it asks us to take a look at it from a different angle and it asks us are we willing to look at the people that have hurt us in our past are we willing to look at them as spiritually sick like we are spiritually sick it makes it a level playing field you know what I mean? It it makes us um, on even ground mm -hmm. where I can't expect too much from you and you can't expect too much from me. And then it asks me to take a look at it this way, to remove you entirely, remove the wrongs that you may have done entirely and resolutely look at my own self. And where had I made mistakes? Where had I been selfish? Where had I been dishonest? Because in every single one of those resentments, I had been something. I showed up in some way, shape, or form. I might have taken something that you did at five years old, held a grudge all these years, but I've been character assassinating you to hundreds of people along the way. Okay, here's right? where my mind goes. Like, I'm listening to this, and I think there's always the one thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, but I have this one thing. Mm -hmm. I was really wounded by this person I was the abuse was real the trauma I experienced was real do I have to give that up do I have to look at their side you know what you know if I'm thinking about doing this I think there's that one thing that we hold on to right we all have the one thing I think everybody has a one thing you know I had two or three things yeah you know I could because I felt that if I looked at, at, at the person that I felt harmed me mm -hmm. and had compassion and empathy, I, I believed that there was, it wasn't just. They right. weren't punished, you know? And, and, and how am I supposed to forgive somebody like that? But the reality of it is, if you look at it, and, and this is easier said than done, it, it takes time. But if you look at each thing that you've experienced, if I experienced something at, say, age seven, and I'm a 40-year-old woman sitting down writing my first inventory, how many years, how many years has that person held me hostage? Oh, wow. They've held me hostage. And that person, more than likely, within 24 hours after what had taken place, doesn't know who I am, nor have they thought of me ever again. But all those years, they have held me hostage. And it asks me, it's not saying that, that I, you know, I don't have a legitimate harm. It's not saying that I don't have a legitimate trauma. But what I would ask you 
I would say, how do you feel that has affected all your relationships from age five to 40? Because although I'm sure you think you're a wonderful wife and I'm sure you believe that you're a wonderful mother, that taints every relationship I get involved in moving forward. It There's no way that it can't, right? Either I'm withholding or I'm overdoing, right? To compensate in some way, shape or form. So when I'm working with another person, because I sponsor as well, I give them absolute love in that area and support but i have you you have to ask some uncomfortable questions what have you done about it how long are you willing to stay the victim and it takes the victimhood away yeah it, 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 it you have to you doesn't know, take the wrong away no or the evil no, away right no 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 not at all but we're embarking on a spiritual journey, a spiritual way of life. How free do you want to be? You know, that's the way it's presented to me, and that's the way I present it to other women. Do you want freedom? You know, have you sought outside help? Have you gone to therapy? There's trauma therapists that specialize mm -hmm. in, in this, you know. We can work together and develop a prayer practice to ask God to show you how. All the prayers that I learned throughout my recovery were never anything other than ask God how. God, show me how. Show me how to have compassion, love, and empathy. Well, if I knew how to do it, I wouldn't be seeking God <laughs> to show me how. Because right? exactly. I can't because I stayed stuck there since I was seven. You know, so we start depending on a power greater than me, right? And, and that's how it begins. And it takes time. It's not overnight. You can go through the step process quickly, mm -hmm. but you're going to be practicing this for the rest of your life. Like I said, you know, I started my recovery journey 18, 19 years ago. I have 17 years clean and sober today, but it was a journey. It's a process. Mm -hmm. And the practice that I have today is so different than the practice I had when I was one year sober, three years sober, five years sober. I have to continue to grow. I have to continue to go deeper. It's not about drugs and alcohol today for me. It's about how I think, how I act, how I feel. What's my relationship with God? Do I understand what the word relationship means? You know, am I spending time, legitimate amount of time, more than three minutes in the morning and three minutes at night with my creator? You know, mm -hmm. am I having those, you know, that communion with them throughout the day, right? If I believe that this is what saved my life and pulled me back from the gates of death, well, how much time am I spending with the being that's responsible for doing that? I got a question. Yeah. I know there's probably someone here listening and they, you talked about relapse mm -hmm. and it's like, I just can't get it right. I went to treatment, I've relapsed, I've gone to, I, it's not working, mm -hmm. I keep, re how do you get the courage to say, I'm going to try one more time, um, or I'm going to do one more time, or what is that? Because it, it, you have to feel defeated. You do. You do, and there's so much guilt, and there's so much shame. How do you let that go and say, I'm worth it? Yeah, that's tough. Um for me, it was I didn't want to die. Wow. 
that's what it came down to. You know, it, you know, it became, it got to the point where it was either to, you know, in our literature, it says, you know, to be doomed an alcoholic death or to live a spiritual life. I knew I was going to die. I knew that if I continued doing what I was doing, I was going to die. And that last relapse, step one says that we're powerless over alcohol, we're powerless over our addiction, that life had become unmanageable. And I don't believe that I had surrendered. I don't believe that I had done a step one because I still thought I was powerful enough. I still thought that no matter how bad it was this time, it would be different. And it just wasn't. You know, when I walked back into the doors of treatment, when I walked back into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I felt so shameful, but I never in my life experienced the love that was showered on me when I walked in those doors. If you had to give somebody advice today, they're sitting here, they're listening to this, and they're overcome with that grief, with the Mm -hmm. shame, they're still holding on to that one thing, what would you say? That if you do walk back into the door of a treatment facility or if you do have the courage to walk back into the door of a fellowship, whether it be AA, NA, whatever, you know, whatever fellowship you choose, know that you're walking into a room of people that aren't going to judge you. You're walking into a room of people that love you more than you could possibly imagine, that want to support you and will hold you up until you're capable of walking on your own. And that's all we want to do. That's all we want to do is just to love you, support you, and welcome you. That's home. That's home for you. Marguerite, the wisdom and the compassion that you demonstrate every day to our patients and to our alums is incredible. And I thank you for your time, your service, and all that you do for RCA. Um, I, I, this is my ending question always. Favorite recovery quote? Favorite recovery quote. Wow. I would have to say, and I'm going to misquote them, I'm sure, but it's from Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. And it's Herbert Spencer's quote. And it references contempt prior to investigation. That will keep you in everlasting uh, ignorance and intolerance. Yeah. Contempt prior to investigation. I'm going to write that one down today. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. Truly appreciate you. Admire you so much. Thank you, Jay. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us today for the Strength and Recovery Podcast. Real people, real experiences, real hope. This podcast is presented by the Alumni Association of Recovery Centers of America. If you're interested in learning more, visit rcaalumni.com. Here, you can fill out our web form to make sure you're receiving our daily recovery emails and are notified of special events. The Alumni Association of RCA exists to connect individuals to an active recovery community. It is our goal to work with alumni to help them succeed, belong, and ultimately serve others. We help our alumni succeed by hosting more than 120 recovery support meetings per month with both virtual and in-person offerings of big book studies, speaker meetings, beginners meetings, Monday through Friday daily inspiration meetings, meetings for men and women, and faith-based meetings. 
Second, we create a welcoming community that provides a sense of belonging with a full calendar of events each month. Speaker series, barbecues, holiday celebrations, bowling, sporting events, theater shows, and much more. Thirdly, we provide an opportunity for our alumni to serve both the recovery community and in our local neighborhoods. We offer speaker commitments, chair commitments, mentoring opportunities in our facilities, volunteering at food banks, recovery, and overdose awareness events. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Recovery Centers of America provides inpatient and outpatient treatment and has locations in Massachusetts, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Indiana, and Illinois. Recovery Centers of America, or RCA, was founded to break down barriers to expert treatment. We answer the phone and admit patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, are in network with major insurance providers and provide evidence-based treatment in our world-class facilities. If you or someone you know needs help, call 1-800-RECOVERY and know we are here for you.